Okay, I'm so happy to talk to you this morning. Mackie Raymond from Stanford's Credo Center. Could you please help me with the acronym so I don't get it wrong? The Center for Research on Education Outcomes. Good morning. Good morning. Um, So since I have you on the horn here, I have to take advantage of this. This is not what you're here to talk about, but I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I just regularly get this question or two, and I have you in in real time here to answer it for me, and we can refer to this. But I often get the question, do charter schools outperform traditional public schools and or do charter schools work? So since I have you here, could you please just give me five minutes uh, on that question? I always cite sure. you. I always say, well, according to the researchers at Stanford Credo and Dr. Mackie Raymond, blah, blah, blah. So if you could just give me uh, a couple sentences on do charter schools outperform non-charter schools? Sure. Well, so first let me say um, that the information that I'm about to share with you is several years out of date, and we are actually in the process of updating our national study. So we're very much looking forward to seeing what the new numbers will reveal. But the last time we did a large-scale evaluation of how well charter schools helped their students learn compared to what those students would have learned had they gone to their local district schools, what we found was that on average, in reading, students in charter schools learned a little bit more over the course of a year than their peers in district schools. And in math, they learned about the same. That's a story at the average, but I don't actually think the average tells the full story because there's a big distribution around the average. And for me, the real story is what does the variation across the charter school population show us about what is possible with charter schools? Mm -hmm. And if you look at the high end of the distribution of charter schools, what they are able to do in the communities that they serve, which are largely low income, high minority, largely educationally disadvantaged for long periods of time, the kinds of advantages of attending a charter school compared to a district school are stunning, mm-hmm. large, <clears throat> and dramatic. And so for me, it's the evidence proof at the high end that really tells the story about charter schools in in the United States. And in every state that we study, we find these schools serving the exact same kids that are going to the district uh, schools, and they're using the same or fewer resources and getting just these much more dramatic Mm -hmm. um, results. So I think that there's a real interest in these next set of data because the landscape has changed for charter schools a lot in the last five years. And so we're looking for the new numbers to tell us what's happened. And you've been studying this for years and years. I feel like you're, correct me, your first study came out around 2007, 2005? I mean, 2009. 2009. It's been a long time, at least 10 years. And it seems like charter schools over that time period have gotten uh, inch by inch a little bit better over time. I, I would guess as the poor performers close and we get better at knowing what a good charter school is before they open. But it seems to me like it's a kind of in a continuous improvement mode, the sector. Would you agree with that? So I, I can agree with that. Uh, when we, between the first and the second national studies, we looked at what happened to the first cohort that we studied in 2009. And we found that there were, there are literally two places where 
um, there's a big impact on the quality of the sector. The first is who do you let in and give a charter to to open? Mm -hmm. And your point is exactly on target that authorizers across the country are getting better at understanding what the telltale signs are of high potential for success. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually been a fascinating learning curve to study um, across the country. Uh, this is a group of people who have really worked hard to become a professional learning community and really share their learnings across authorizers from state to state. I think you um, say uh, start strong, stay strong. Is that right? <clears throat> exactly. Start strong, stay strong. And the other part of this is also a, a partly an authorizer study uh, story, but it's that when charter schools come up for renewal, uh, more and more authorizers are getting tough about giving them permission to continue. Mm -hmm. And the uh, that that also then puts pressure on the sector potentially to close without necessarily having to go through a renewal process. If you know your chances of, of renewal are really low, mm -hmm. there are charter schools who are saying we're just not even going to try. Right. And certainly your findings point to the fact that for certain groups of children, um, as you mentioned, low income and students of color and students in urban schools, the results are pretty clear, right? That they yeah. that going to a charter school is academically beneficial to these to these particular groups of students. Yes, that's correct. And I also want to stress something else, which is that while charter schools have done better with minority and low income students. Um, there's still a really dramatic difference in how much learning a minority student has in the course of a year compared to a white or an mm -hmm. Asian student. And so I continue to say that while there's an advantage in charter schools, that the entire public school sector has not really gotten clear on how best to educate students of color and low-income students because those deltas compared to what a white student would normally learn in a course of a year are dramatic. Right. And they're dramatic at both sides. And that's what keeps us busy. <clears throat> and so what I really want to talk about is the fact that education researchers and education policy researchers like myself, will we're going to have decades ahead of us of stuff to study from the 2019-2020 school year and the 2020-2021 school year in <clears throat> terms of what happened when we had to shut the whole system down and everyone suddenly, every parent suddenly found themselves homeschooling and virtually educating their children. And uh, just quickly to go back to all of the research you've done, your findings on uh, virtual charter schools are not good. No. Um, and I actually urge people not to use that as a standard for what happened during COVID. Um, but to, to describe the online charter school results, um, the typical online student did not do anywhere near as well as a brick or mortar charter school student did, mm -hmm. or even their district peers. It was um, a dramatically inferior result when we did that study, and that was six or seven years ago. So what do you think, uh, do you have any um, early or any prognostications about what has happened with student learning in this school year, this one that just ended? Well, so we have a couple of surveys out in the field um, at the moment. We're studying what happened in charter schools in Washington State, New York State, and California. Mm -hmm. um, what I would like to mention is um, 
all schools were, were called on at about the same moment to flip their model from a classroom-based instructional model to some form of remote learning. Yeah. And last year, we studied all of the charter schools in New York State. We had like 98% of the schools participated in the study. And to our real amazement, what we found was that this was a classic case study of the charter bargain, which is flexibility for accountability. And what Mm -hmm. we saw in the data last year was that charter schools to a school, like none of them were, were were unable to report a very, very fast pivot. So everybody pivoted really quickly. The average length of time to pivot to a remote model was five to school days. Right. We saw that and, in St. Louis too, yeah. And so the, the comparative data about what district schools were wrangling with and wrestling with uh, puts charter schools in a phenomenal light in terms of their logistics mm-hmm. and their commitment to serving the students and families that are enrolled in those schools. Um, What we found last year and the early results from this year is that there has been improvement in the remote learning models in charter schools. Last year, in the last part of the 1920 school year, uh, charter schools were doing what they could, but it wasn't a full menu of full academics. They were shaving some of the lesser courses they were doing, they were lightening up on the content in the coursework that they did do. This year, they came back with most of the schools, and I'm, I'm going to pick a number here that doesn't hold until I have all the data in, but maybe three quarters of the schools produced an entire suite of, of academics and also managed to throw in some non-academics as well. Wow. And we know that wasn't, well, I know that that wasn't happening across the state of Missouri. We are half, about half of our schools are rural, and I think they really struggled to um, provide learning experiences. <clears throat> a lot of, a lot, I mean, probably close to 100 of our school districts don't even have web page websites. They use Facebook to communicate. And because um, we were digging in sort of what the University of Washington was doing to build a database of what the school districts in Missouri were doing. And so many mm-hmm. of them just did not have the capacity to immediately create remote learning experiences. And they they were the ones that were doing um, uh, photocopies of packets that parents could pick mm-hmm. up, fill out, mm-hmm. bring back. And so they kind of wrote it off. And, you know, we were close to the end of the school year, kind of. And so that was fine. But this school year, I don't yet know, but I can only imagine that there's been dramatic uh, learning loss for the students who even participated. And we know for sure in Missouri that a, like 10% of our students didn't enroll, uh, the expected number. And then of the ones who did enroll, I think a lot of them didn't uh, show up or we don't know where they are. So I think there's going to be a lot to reckon with as we move forward and figure out what exactly happened this year. And so you are you are laying the foundation for <clears throat> the real tragedy that's happening in many states. I ha- I happen to know Missouri is not included in this, but a lot of states are uh, backpedaling away from student assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a variety of, of rationales being offered, but one of the consequences of this is that we do not have clear a clear line of sight on exactly what happened to kids. And many states now 
are allowing such a degree of flexibility in student assessment that it will be literally impossible for us to understand how students learned in various settings, how much they have to make up in various settings, how quickly they can recover in various settings. Mm-hmm. And my, my sense is that these are students who the economists now say are going to lose up to 10% of their lifetime learn- earnings because oh, yeah. of the experience they've had in the last 18 months. And in particular, economist Dr. Rick Hanyashek also did an estimate of the loss to GDP of the country. Is that right? Well, I happen to know a little bit about that, yes. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, uh, Eric Hanyashek's <laughs> husband. Um, this is all about how the loss to GDP results from the fact that these are students who over their lifetimes in the labor force are going to be substantially... Uh, impacted. And that rolls up to uh, the wealth of nations. So this is serious. And this is what I really want to talk to you about today, because I believe that Missouri has a problem with the high school outcomes of our students. And again, half of our high schools are considered rural. And we have, you know, for the population of students, we have a lot of school districts, we have 520. And so we have these very small districts with this with the high school that in many cases is not able to offer a lot of high-level coursework. A third of our high schools can't offer or don't offer calculus, and we have similar problems with physics and AP. And that's one group of students that concerns me because I believe that there are future engineers and doctors and pilots born all across this state, and they don't have access to some of those um, experiences. But also, I feel like we have a lot we could do better in terms of our career and technical education with our high school students. And so you recently uh, wrote a piece as part of a book, I believe, on rethinking the structure of our high schools. And that's what I really want to talk about, because I think Missouri needs it. I know you've been working with Missouri, and maybe you know more than I do about what's hopeful or optimistic about our high schools. But I'm not seeing very many of our high school students getting uh, industry-recognized credentials. I'm not seeing great numbers around uh, college readiness from the ACT scores. And it really worries me because Missouri has a net outflow of people with bachelor's degrees. We have sort of a brain drain where people, if they do get a college degree, they leave. And we need to turn that around as a state to make people want to come here and live here. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit is this idea of redesigning our high schools, their functions and how they work. Well, it's a great topic and I'm happy to move to that. Mm-hmm. My um, my work is part of a larger set of activities here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. We have a Hoover Education Success Initiative that has uh, combined rigorous scholarship with the frontline experiences of education policy leaders across the country who have membership in something we call the Practitioners Council. And we studied what the likely big topics would be coming out of the COVID pandemic. And just a few months ago, released a set of essays that were authored by scholars, but had very um, candid reactions from the policymakers uh, also included in the report. So I would encourage anybody to go to the Hoover website and and take a look at that. I wrote specifically on the moment of opportunity that the pandemic has pushed on policymakers to rethink high schools. Mm -hmm. Um, 
we know that high schools weren't doing a stellar job before the pandemic. Um, and so uh, we, we had dilution of course content, we had relaxation of graduation standards, we had a sort of a passing attempt in many parts of the country to measure something considered college and career ready, but it didn't actually translate to college and career ready. And so there was already a big need for rethinking prior to the pandemic. Now that you've had um, a year and a half of students being disconnected from a, a, a normal high school experience, sure. that need is even more pressing. And I think this is a great opportunity in places like Missouri. We have the opportunity to rethink something called the Carnegie unit. Which yeah, tell me about that. I think that's fascinating because we all, when I went to high school, it was relatively new. Wait a minute. Is it 40 years ago? So, 1983. Yeah. Wow. Um, time flies. Anyway, a nation at risk. And, and the idea was to get these Carnegie units, like three English and three math. And, and it was all course taking. And we were going to check off these, you know, a student would leave high school with these college college prep number of units. And that has not been a successful, I mean, test scores haven't budged, right? So you're right. Um, actually, the Carnegie unit was a system that was invented for higher education. Mm -hmm. And then it was brought into the secondary part of public schools um, because there was an expectation that we had a completely clear idea about what a 10th grade unit of math would consist of. <laughs> What's ended up happening, because we have 51 different jurisdictions looking at education in our country, is that what constituted a 10th grade math course started to slide in 51 different directions. Right. And as it became clear that some districts and some states were not able to uh, ensure that their students could fulfill those kinds of requirements, you ended up starting this long slide of dilution. And so ninth grade math in California, 10th grade math in California, there's like 40 different courses now of 10th grade math. And uh, how they all get allowed credit for uh, a, a full unit of, of coursework towards graduation is a bit of a head scratcher to me. What so, we're really talking about is is mastery, right? We want our students to have a mas mastery of a body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so by eliminating the Carnegie unit and moving students to more of a mastery-based progression of learning, I think that we can actually do a lot better by our students um, who are in high schools today. So we have these end-of-course exams, right, or EOC exams. Are you saying that if you took... Um geometry and you didn't pass the end of course exam then you wouldn't get the credit you wouldn't get the the unit for that that's correct so what we you... used to do this we used to do eocs with with retest possibilities okay and you would just continue to study and take the test until you passed it so would we have like 19 and 20 year olds in high school i would much rather have 19 <laughs> and 20 year olds in high school than have them out in the world unprepared for Oh, I agree. Because the one number that's always looking good and getting better every year is high school graduation rates. The one number that I always say is easiest to game, you can hand a kid a diploma. But I feel like their skills are are declining. So, okay, so I really like this idea. We get rid of this credit unit thing. And you don't mm. get to move on to the next 
Uh, you don't get to go from geometry to algebra two until you've mastered geometry. That's the idea. Then what do we do about career and technical education? So I am a big fan of not just the dual track of college prep versus career and technical, mm -hmm. but both and. I think that it's possible for kids at a fairly young age to have interest in both an academic course, because most kids eventually do go and get some college. So college prep is a big deal. Sure. But they also have the opportunity to explore career opportunities and, and technical training that would give them industry recognized credentials. Sure. There are emerging models for how to do this that do not require every single high school to have 16 different uh, career tracks. You can look at a variety of opportunities, including a lot of industry-based online credentials programs oh. that can allow students to stack credentials as, as they move through high school. Maybe not get the full credential, but certainly get a bunch of it under their, under their belts. Um, and have the opportunity to connect with the employment uh, side of the world, employers and the world of work, to actually fill in some life experience there that does not have to be in person. That also can be remote. So so some of these industry-recognized credentials, just for people who are listening, would be like certified nursing assistant or Adobe Photoshop certified or automated, automotive service excellence or ASE certified. And these are... Credentials that are based on exams created by the industry, not by the school or the Department of Education, but the industry itself creates the exam, sort of like a CPA exam, and the student can take that exam, earn the credential while they're still in high school, and then when they graduate, even if they do go on to post-secondary in some form, they already have that credential and they don't have to start from scratch on that, right? Well, right, and so... The reality of the work world these days suggests that people are going to have to retool their skill sets throughout their working lives. We no longer have companies that hire right out of high school and you stay until you retire. Right. That's a, a model of the past. And so giving folks this both and understanding that you could spend some time building credentials and spend some time in the labor force and maybe take advantage of some employer benefit of increasing your skills while you're employed, sure. but basically moving back and forth between skill building and employment or stacking those on top of each other, that's the new model. And we don't do a good job of teaching kids how to do that navigation. How do you think so, Missouri's doing? So I am not in a position to know much about okay. that other than what we see in the data. Mm -hmm. And your story about the rural high schools is, is exactly on point. I mean, I looked at the industry-recognized credential or IRC data from a couple of years ago, the latest that were available at the time, and I haven't seen new data. Um, however, the HVAC IRC in Missouri that year, nine students passed it. And that tells me, not that there aren't... Uh, I'm sure that there are more students interested in that field or would be more interested in that field if they're aware of it. It just tells me that maybe they're going through programs and not leaving with the credential. And I would like to to encourage 
Missouri's Department of Education to find ways to really incentivize or prioritize that the students leave with that credential. So I, th- I can imagine a student leaving a program without the credential, and then they go out to find a job, and they find out they have to go backwards then and work to study for the exam and get the credential. So part of that is lack of exposure and understanding, right? That kids don't understand what the requirements are of the work world. And so that's part of the navigation training that Mm -hmm. I was just talking about. Um, I think that there is a joint responsibility between the state education department and school boards of districts across the state that they need to make sure that the right information is available to kids early enough that there's a runway for them to actually act. And so I think that the career slash college navigation skill set needs to actually start being trained in middle school. Yeah. So the kids at high school understanding with a plan what they want to do. I think that obviously we all know that the um, the career technical ed or VOTEC, we just call it, has gotten a bad rap as a place where kids who can't handle college end up, right? But there are some super cool CTE high schools now. And I think as adults, when I go and look at what is available at these high schools, I want to go to them. So I do think part of it is exposure just to um, not give that track second class status, you know, but to expose kids to how um, how uh, many careers are available to them, how they can be successful in those careers. And those are careers that help you attain, you know, middle class status or, you know, they can they can provide really great careers. And I don't think that we've done a good job in that regard because I think we've allowed it to we have implied that every child should go to college and get a four year degree. Right. So I agree that we've we've really focused on the college going rate. Um, I think that the uh, I think the world is actually catching up on career and technical education or voc ed, uh, because I do see uh, I see many examples of high schools that are much more focused on careers that are not the typical um, mechanic or cosmetology. Yeah or even IT repair, which has been very popular over the last 20 years. But they're going into things like, uh, you know, CAD and CAM design. They're they're into uh, a a wider range of health sciences than Mm -hmm. simply nurses' aides. Um, They're into a lot. Exactly. They're, they're, They're moving into a lot of the creative and service industries. I think that there's such a great opportunity to leverage the uh, the expertise and credentialing opportunities that are out there, even if they're done remotely, mm-hmm. that kids can get excited about doing school in high school yeah. because they're building to a future. So as I said, I'm not sure that we're preparing our high school students um, sufficiently. Well, actually, I'm pretty sure we're not for college or career. But, you know, the bigger problem is the students often that high schools inherit. So if you were uh, appointed queen and had all the power in the universe, what would you do to fix the um, elementary and middle schools that feed into our high schools? Because I don't think students leave eighth grade, far too many students leave eighth grade, not ready for high school. In fact, one of the recommendations in the high school reimagining paper is that we have to get much, much better about ensuring quality in lower elementary and middle elementary, upper elementary 
um, schools. I completely agree with you. Um, my sense is that this mastery model actually starts all the way at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And we have had a notion that one teacher in a classroom of 25 or 30 kids um, can move all the kids at exactly the same pace throughout a year's worth of time. I think we have to relax T, the time variable. And Uh I think that there are now enough technological and supplemental instructional opportunities available to districts and schools and families that a mastery model from the very beginning that says we we will advance you as you master material we're only going to let you go forward when you've successfully demonstrated that you have handled the material you've already been given i think is the way to go and and holding schools accountable for not letting kids go on to the next grade span until they've ever actually demonstrated the necessary mastery. I think that's right. And I think that a lot of the countries that absolutely outperform uh, the United States, particularly in math, they have a mastery model. Singapore has a mastery model so that you students in early elementary schools learn, for example, the number line once and they learn it until they master it and then they move on. Whereas in the United States, Second grade, you learn the number line, then you loop back again in the beginning of third grade and revisit the number line. And maybe in fourth grade, you go back to the number line. And, you know, it's just kind of this looping thing rather than making sure a student learns it. And I think we're seeing more of this type of approach in reading, like you have to be reading by fourth grade or you don't advance. But I also feel like parents and maybe even teachers kind of work against that because they don't want the child to feel badly. If they finished third grade, they can't read and they can't go on to fourth grade. So I strongly support these models like Florida's that if you're not uh, a proficient reader, you don't go on. But Mm -hmm. I do think there's a whole social aspect to it that we're letting take too much importance. So I agree with you that that we have allowed um, reputation to trump um, excellence. Mm-hmm. And that's too bad. Um, and, and that's reinforced by the districts who who want to want to be able to show kids progressing. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody everybody has a role to play in this. Um, I think that there are ways to get around that. Uh, and we see some of that emerging out of covid because families have gotten together in in some cases they've they've banded together to do school collectively. Yeah. But even coming out of the pandemic, a lot of these family collectives, I'll I'll just call them that, Mm -hmm. pods is what other people call them, but they're hanging together because they're supporting each other in adopting a different approach to education. And they want that to persist even if the students go back to school. So it's a different perspective on on how well they want their students to do. And they're all working together to support the group of kids. Do you think those, yeah, you think those will be allowed to continue? Because I talk about that a lot. uh, There's a lot of interest, according to surveys of parents, of of continuing with these education hubs, or there's dozens of names for them. But, you know, they want to keep doing this. And the structure of our public school system doesn't really include that model. So I wonder if... You think it will uh, adjust after this school year so that parents who want to can continue to do those types of things? I do. Okay. Um, so even in California? Things, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think even in California. I don't think everywhere in California, but yes, I do think in California. Sure. 
Um, <laughs> so one of the things that's come out of the pandemic that I think is absolutely great is that uh, parents, A, understand a whole lot more about what's happening in their yeah. children's education. Two, they are motivated in ways that they had to become motivated, but now they're motivated. Yeah. And they're not shy. So we're already hearing about families going to school boards and saying, this is not, you know, what you're doing is not going to work for my kid. That's and right. here's 60 other families that feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And I know some school districts are keeping their own virtual programs going, I think, because they now want to keep the parents who like virtual and not lose those parents to like a statewide virtual or to another <clears> virtual <throat> charter. So they're trying to sort of compete on this virtual thing, which I think is interesting. Um I've even heard superintendents say, well, we want ours to be good enough that parents don't leave our virtual for a different virtual because <laughs> parents, you know, still want this. And I, what I think is really interesting in the uh, survey data I saw from just a month ago when parents are asked after the pandemic how many days a week they want their child in school, uh, like 37 percent gave a, like a two or three days at home and two or three days yeah. in school. Like parents kind of like having their kids around a couple days, apparently. I think that's right. I think the one of the long-term consequences of COVID is that the walls of schools become much more permeable. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we have to acknowledge a much different uh, set of opportunities that are feasible and need to be supported. So I think, I think you're going to see a lot more uh, dynamic enrollment in schools. I actually think there's probably going to be uh, so, some interaction between charter schools and district schools. I, I think so. those walls become permeable. Certainly, we've been talking about the high school becoming much more permeable to different learning opportunities and you know work life experiences and different pacing. Maybe some some kids would actually want to leave school for six months and go in and actually try to do some some job experience and then come back and finish their high school degree. I think. We are at a point where the classic model of four, four walls to a school, the kid walks in, they're there for eight hours a day, and they walk out again. It's just, it, it's not going to survive. I hope you're right. I really do. Because there's so many opportunities here. And a lot of things didn't work. But a lot of things did. And, you know, uh, YMCA's and Boys and Girls Clubs stepped up and they allowed kids to come in and have a safe place. And then they brought in tutors and then they certified some of their staff to be tutors. I mean, I saw a lot of cool ideas happening because it, they had to. And I want to keep hold of some of these and not try to force us back into like a pre-COVID model because um, that would just like we'd be giving up so many things that we learned. I also I, think... I High school students could now much more easily take college classes, right? Because college sure. classes, especially first year college classes, maybe not at Stanford, but at many schools, many state universities, some of your first year classes are remote anyway. So now high school students could take their uh, freshman English and freshman math online while they're still in high school. And I just see a lot of opportunities there, too. So let's let's take this from a slightly different perspective back into high school, which is I think it would be terrific if employers would map out what skills they expect in a variety of entry level positions and essentially advertise that skill bundle. Nice. So they would be able then to map against this mastery map that we've just been talking about. Right. And so huh. as students 
continue to earn their mastery points, their badges, their micro credentials, whatever, all of the employers that would want that in their entry level position, that particular skill light up for that kid. Nice. And so as the student continues their, their coursework and their life uh, and their, their training experiences, they get to see in sort of real time what pathways are becoming open to them. And mm -hmm. so you end up with not just the mastery side from the high school, secondary, dual enrollment, multiple experience side, but then the employers play along too and say, I want to advertise what, what of those skills are going to be valuable to me. And so if you're thinking about following your bliss as a high school student, mm -hmm. or you're thinking about wanting a employable pathway, those two things meet in the middle and can can signal both to high school educators and to families opportunities to ask for a different set of resources in high school that would help students lead to more um, employable opportunities. Yeah, that's so smart. And it could be community-based because there might be one set of skills in Southeast Missouri that's different than Northwest Missouri. So I think that that's Brilliant. really a really smart Brilliant. way to go. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Mackie. Thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you for your interest in Missouri. We need you. And um, can you just tell uh, the people who are listening where they can find your collection of essays? Absolutely. The Hoover Education Success Initiative, H-E-S-I, okay. on the Hoover Institution website. Great. Hoover.org. All right. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All righty. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you today. Right, same. All right. Take care.